Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. My name is Bronwyn Winter and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, which is 8.55 on your AM dial. Rape. Perhaps it's the only crime in which the victim becomes the accused. Frida Alder, Sisters in Crime, 1975. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today I'm speaking with Dr Jocelyn Scutt about violence in the family. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. Good to be with you. Now, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Yeah, sure. This, the book that you have with you, even in the best of homes, Violence in the Family, was published in 1983 originally by Penguin Books, and then it was reprinted in 1990 by McCulloch Publishing. And I actually really wanted the title to be Even in the Best of Homes or Criminal Assault at Home because it seemed to me that using the euphemistic term domestic violence really isolates what's happening and downplays the seriousness of it. And when I was engaged in this whole debate very strongly in Australia, myself and a colleague, Dawn Rowan, in Adelaide came up with the term criminal assault at home, and I've used it ever since. And we even managed to have a report that was done by the Victorian government called, they called it criminal assault in the home. But at least we managed to get that terminology in, and I've used it ever since. And one can actually change the language because I think it really is important to ensure that we recognise that what is going on here is criminal. It's not simply just a domestic, as has been alleged in the past. That's changing a bit, but it still hasn't changed sufficiently. So that was the work I did in that area because of my concern about all areas of criminal assault at home, including child sexual assault, child abuse, spouse assault, rape in marriage, marital murder, and so on. Historically, what has been the connection between family and slavery? Well, that's a really good question because when slavery was invented in its modern form in the United States and here in the United Kingdom, there had to be a contractual relationship devised to actually cover the relationship between the slave and the slave owner. And there wasn't any contract that existed that actually fitted that particular relationship. And so what they did choose was the marital contract to actually apply to the slave relationship. And that really has its origins in Rome as well, because back in the Roman Empire, the 
pater familias, the father of the family, was the father of the wife, the slaves, the children, the animals, and they were all put into one sort of rag bag that he was in charge of. So it, it really came out of the marriage contract and that idea of the man of the house who was simply in charge of everything and everybody and had the right to determine the life chances of anybody within that particular cohort. Now, a lot of parents consider it their right to smack their children, but in the last few years, it's become quite controversial, hasn't it? Yes. Sweden actually abolished smacking of children a very long time ago in the recognition, number one, that children are humans too. And if we say that adults shouldn't be hit, well, then there's no cause for saying that children should. Secondly, that it doesn't actually really assist in any way in disciplinary sense, that if we want children to operate in the world in a way that appreciates and values the relationships of other human beings, it's not really teaching them a good way to relate to people if there are some people in the world who are entitled to hit them. And what you also teach children if you hit them and use smacking as a form of discipline is that if something's really important, then it's A-OK to smack. And, as I said, that if there's somebody in a position of authority, they have a right to actually hit. Now, they're not really good... That's not a good ethos that we're operating from. And I would recognise, of course, that when people have children and they're young and they're running about at two or four and so on, that it can be really very difficult and a time-consuming task and it can be absolutely exhausting. But what we really need is to have proper respite care, we need proper children's services, we need Sure Start, we need children's centres and so on. I mean, unfortunately, living here in the United Kingdom, there have been 500 children's centres shut down over the period since the Conservatives have been in power. And that means that the numbers of what we call here looked-after children, of children in care, are soaring. Well, it's no wonder that they are and that the numbers of children being abused are rising because if you don't have the proper supports for parents who may be on the job 24 hours a day, well, then, of course, they're going to be in a position where, out of frustration, they might hit when that actually is not the right thing to do. And what they've done in Sweden and other countries where they've abolished, my understanding is in Aotearoa, New Zealand also, they've abolished the right to hit, then what they're saying is we need to find alternative ways of actually ensuring that parents get proper support and that in carrying out discipline, we ask, number one, is this a, an instance where discipline is the right answer? And number two, if so, then what's the form of discipline we're going to use? And we need to be sufficiently wise not to use a hit, which, as I said, is not teaching a child anything of value in terms of their existence in the world as children or in terms of growing up to become adults. So what part does economic factors play in violence in the family? The thing is that... Criminal assault at home and other forms of domestic violence, violence in the family, occur in every single level of society. And some people want to say it's just all happening down there in the area of socioeconomic 
difficulty and socio-economic disadvantage. Well, of course, what one finds is that that is just another miss or furphy, just as it's, there are efforts to say that it only happens when he's drunk in terms of raping marriage or beating up one's spouse, etc. And so, of course, economic factors can play a role in terms of people becoming frustrated or upset or angry or annoyed. But those economic factors can operate at all levels because somebody, for example, can be on $200,000 or pounds a year and they still are living at a level where they're scrabbling for every single dollar. Whereas somebody who is on a much lower income may be a much better manager and therefore they organise their lives so that those monetary factors that loom large are more under their control. So when we look at economic factors, what I believe is that we shouldn't have the gross economic differences that exist in society at the present time and certainly advocating that we need more egalitarian economic distribution. But to pick on people who are in the poverty bracket or disadvantage bracket and say, well, it's all happening down there, is simply wrong. The same as it's simply wrong to say that somehow criminal assault at home and other forms of domestic violence are simply associated with one field of ethnicity or one field of race or one particular X, whatever the factor is. Uh, What we find is that this form of abuse and misuse and exploitation covers all ethnicities and all class systems and all economic relations and that's re- it's insidious it's actually built in sadly to the structure of our society and the notion that men were in charge and did have the right to rule the roost and did have the right to beat their wives and to control their children in whatever way they chose and we simply have to undo all those centuries of that sort of ideology which still does play a part in relations in today's society. Yeah now on the subject of child abuse a couple of years ago I saw a movie called Wolfpack where seven siblings were homeschooled and confined to a New York apartment they they really had no experience of the outside world and were only taken out for medical appointments but when they were discovered the authorities in this case said that they couldn't charge the parents with abuse sometimes do you think that the law fails children i think most certainly that that can be true i mean i suppose that what was being said there was that they were fed and they were clothed, and they were housed, and they were being schooled. But there are other factors in terms of socio-economic and human rights that children are entitled to. And if one looked at the Convention on Human Rights, one may be able to find provisions in the Convention on Human Rights that actually assert that that approach was wrong. I'd have to look at the provisions on the on the Convention to make sure, but it would seem to me that if you're denying a child interaction with children of their own age, even though they had their siblings, but with the outside world, that's a very important part of growing up. Now, there was a case in the States that involved one of the religious groupings, 
and they were being schooled within their own society. And what the Supreme Court said there, it's actually about the 70s probably this case, they said, well, it was okay for the parents to make that determination because it was the parents' right to determine how their children should be educated. But, of course, I'm not sure that the Supreme Court constituted as it was then because it had some quite thoughtful people on it at that time, very rare at the moment on the Supreme Court in the United States. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, one would say is a very thoughtful judge and Sotomayor, but some of the others are not. But at that time, there were some thoughtful judges and it seems to me that if they were to come back and reconsider that case, they may take a different view because of this issue that children actually do have rights. On, on that issue, it's not just the parents that have rights in relation to the education of their children. Children have rights in terms of the way that they're educated. And when, in Australia, we did endorse and sign the Convention on the Rights of the Child, there were people who objected very strongly to the government doing that because they said parents' rights were being abrogated. But what we have to look at here is the fact that children are human beings who, of course, are dependent upon their parents, and mostly we trust that the parents are really very good in terms of educating their children and taking care of their children, but parents can't be the final arbiters as to what is the best for for children if what they're doing is depriving them of interaction in the world as it exists now. Children do have a right to grow up in a world where they can interact with other human beings and with people that are outside their immediate cohort. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Dr Jocelyn Scutt about violence in the family. Could you explain about the history of marital rape? Yes. I actually did my first doctoral thesis on substantive and evidentiary issues of consent in rape because it really interested me that, for example, within the law there can be an acceptance of truisms or of past authority on the basis of it's always been that way and therefore that's what the law is. And that's what the attitude was towards marital rape. And when I did my thesis, I looked at marital rape in Australia or jurisdictions because criminal law is a state matter and the United States, the United Kingdom and I even looked at, at Germany and out to Ryan, New Zealand to a, to a smaller extent. And what I found was that it didn't matter whether it was a common law jurisdiction like Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand, the US and the UK or a civil law jurisdiction such as Germany, but the same attitude existed and the same principle, so-called, in law that a husband could rape his wife and it would not be criminal or the other way of looking at it, that no husband could ever rape his wife because whatever he did to her of a sexual nature was not rape. Now, in under the English law, this came from Chief Justice Hale, whose book was published in 1736, and he's a revered jurisprudential character in the British legal system, and therefore in Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand too, Canada, And if one does criminal law, then Hale is quite often quoted. And Hale just asserts in his book 
that raping marriage is not a crime and it can't ever occur anyway because husbands don't rape their wives. And then later, in 1888, there's a case, the Crown and Clarence. And in that case, it's always been quoted as endorsing the notion that rape in marriage is not a crime. It actually didn't involve rape in marriage. It involved an instance where a woman had been infected with gonorrhea by the husband. There were quite a lot of cases like this around that turn at that time in the 19th century. And it had always been interpreted, though, as the judges all saying that rape in marriage wasn't a crime. Now, when I went and looked at that case, it said nothing of a sort. And there was only one of the judges who really said that rape in marriage wasn't a crime, unequivocally. And he also said that if the wife was attempting to leave to go off and engage in shopping and spend all her husband's money, then he even had a right to, you know, take her into custody and lock her up in his house. That judge went that far. Others of the judges said, well, look, it, this may be the law, but I'm not really sure. I think that this is not the right case, and I think that there needs to be a case in the future where we can reconsider this. And there were other judges who said, well, I, I actually, I'm beyond not sure. I really don't think that that is the law. So they were actually all really, at one level or another, questioning, but that case had always been accepted as actually a foundation for saying that rape in marriage wasn't a crime. Now, it even took... Uh, I was writing this in Heaven's Above back in, gosh, the 70s. 79, I got my doctorate, and I was publishing on this in 76, 75, 76. Well, it took as long as 1991 for the High Court of Australia to actually realise that, yes, Clarence said nothing of a sort and that rape in marriage was a crime and it needed to be recognised as such. It's really very interesting because they didn't have the courtesy to actually reference any of my work. I'm just having a bit of a, a, a sort of a, a, how can I put it, a reference here to the fact that if you've got a scholar who actually has done all this work and done a PhD on it, well then one would have thought that it would be relevant to go back to that work to have a look, but no, none of them did. And they actually, in the High Court case, it's very interesting because they put it forward as if they discovered it all for themselves. Well, look, perhaps they did. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> I'm just actually saying, just saying, <laughs> you're allowing me to have a bit of a, of a, of a go. Yes, anyway, so that, that and, and that so-called principle, though, hung on for a very long time. And so then in the 70s and the 80s, there was a huge push within the women's movement. I mean, it was simply carrying on from the end of the 19th century when women had been on about rape in marriage and saying, look, it really is a crime. And if you've ever read The Forsyth Saga by John Galsworthy, in The Forsyth Saga, Soames rapes Irene, and that case is actually based on the Clarence case. I've got absolutely no doubt about that. You'll often find fiction writers, of course, going to that in order to write it into their fictional work. So in the, in the 70s, the South Australia did pass a provision that raping marriage was a crime, but they qualified it so much because of the politics of it that it was not so useful. And New South Wales under Neville Rann, when Neville Rann was the Premier, was the first state in Australia to say unequivocally that raping marriage was a crime in the same way as rape between strangers was a crime too. And that was 81. And then the High Court eventually caught up 
1991, and then the High Court here, the House of Lords in the United Kingdom caught up around about the same time and discovered that rape in marriage was a crime and that this notion for however long that it wasn't a crime was simply one that we couldn't, if we'd ever endorse it in the legal system, it was high time to disendorse it. What was the Violet Roberts case and how did this affect the law reform? Violet Roberts was in prison because her husband was an extremely violent man and he was killed by Violet Roberts' son. And because Violet Roberts and the son were seen as co were acting in concert, they were both convicted of murder and they went to, to prison and women behind bars was stirred up sufficiently to fight very strongly for the release of Violet Roberts. I have a recollection that the son may have died because he was not no longer in prison. Whether whether she, she, Anyway, she was in prison and they fought really strongly to get her out. People like Robin Lansdowne and Wendy Bacon at the time uh, fought very strongly and Violet Roberts was eventually released. But the argument that they followed was that if you kill somebody who is being violent towards you, then why cannot provocation be raised as a legitimate partial defence or self-defence? Now, I actually favour self-defence in these cases, but a lot of people have argued it as, as provocation. And the problem was that... Under the traditional provocation law and the traditional self-defence law, they were both drawn up by the common law, that is by courts that were populated by male judges only, and where women had no say in how the law was defined or created or developed at all. Women had no voice whatsoever. And so the law of provocation was based on the notion that if you're walking down an alley and somebody comes at you with a sword, well, then that's a provocative act and you may therefore be able to retaliate if it's all of a sudden they've come upon you. And if you do kill them uh, because you intend to, to do so, but the intention is actually clouded by the provocative act, then you won't be convicted of murder. You'll be convicted of manslaughter and if it's a real self-defense situation where the person comes at you and you really think they're going to kill you and you kill them then that would be self-defense and you would be allowed off without any penalty or crime recorded at all it would be considered that that the person was not guilty and if you think about that one self-defense that's typical for men because if you're walking down an alley and you're a woman, are you likely to have a sword that you can retaliate when this person comes at you with a sword? And if you they come at you with their fists, you're meant to meet the fist with fists. But if a man comes at a woman with fists, very often will be the case that there's no point to her raising her fists because they're simply not going to properly defend her against this attack because women and men are socialised in a different way and to respond in, in a different way and quite often don't have the same musculature and the mu- muscle power. So that principle of meeting sword with sword, fist with fist, was something that was really pro the way that men relate, not the way that a woman and a man might relate to each other. 
And with the provocation, going back to provocation, the typical provo- provocation was where a man came home and found his wife in bed with another man and killed one or the other or both. Now, if you think about that, he might come home, pull out his trusty knife and stab one or other or both, get out his gun and do kill them, or get out his hands and strangle one or the other or both. But if a woman comes home and finds her husband in bed with another woman or somebody else, she's really not going to have a trusty knife or a gun to use. And if she tries to strangle one or other or both, she's generally speaking not going to get very far. And so the woman is much more likely to go and sit in the kitchen and have a bit of a sob and a cup of tea and think, well, God, what am I going to do? Well, that was fatal under uh, provocation law because once you sat down and thought about it, then the law said you weren't acting immediately and spontaneously and therefore you really were acting where you had absolutely determined that you were going to kill somebody. You weren't acting under this the provocative act at that stage. You had determined to actually kill. And that really was not akin to the way that women operate. Now, with the Violet Roberts case, it was those sorts of arguments that were being put. And it did lead to some changes in the law around provocation to say that the response did not have to be immediate, that there could be some pause as long as what you could show was... I mean, if the prosecution could still show that the pause had caused a situation where the individual had actually determined to kill and formed the intention to kill, then provocation would not be operative. So it did make some difference, and it was a cause to live. And those, the women behind bars operated on the basis that you find a case and you publicise it and you make sure that everybody knows who Violet Roberts is and what the wrongs are in her case in order to change the law. And they were very successful, but it didn't stop women from being trapped in situations like that in the future and so there was more agitation by women within the legal system to actually ensure that women could have justice in circumstances where the person who ended up dead was somebody who'd been violent to them for a very long time as is often the case. Well thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Okie doke, Beth. I've been speaking to Dr Jocelyn Scott about violence in the family. Well, that's all we have time for today. I've certainly enjoyed your company and do tune in next week. Also, stay tuned for Are You Looking At Me?